Take your Bibles now and turn together with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll read together to begin our study this evening, um, the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Hear now the word of the living Lord. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God, disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, let's pray now and ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious God, if you do not work within us, these words that we now consider will be nothing more than a clanging cymbal. Far more often than we care to admit, Lord, we have listened to your word. And we've gone away unchanged. We ask now that you would be very close to us. By your Spirit, would you open our eyes so that we might see and open our ears so that we might hear and would you move our feet so that we might obey. We pray in Christ's name and for the sake of his glory. Amen. In some ways, <clears throat> the Christian life is a life of perpetual mourning. What is it that causes the Christian a deep daily sadness? It is the fact that in our conformity to Christ, much is missing. We lack the desire for holiness. We lack a love for Christ. And we fight temptation and sin every day and fail. 
And this grieves our heart. We deeply long perfection in our obedience to the Lord. We long to obey Him just as Christ did, and not from a perfunctory way to say, I checked the box, but in a way that says, I have such a deep and abiding love for God that no temptation can seize my heart and turn my foot astray. And so we grieve because that's not there. He has demonstrated His love for us powerfully. And yet, how often do we turn aside? It seems as though the moment you resolve to improve yourself, for instance, to get up earlier or to go jogging, the moment that you resolve to do that, the next moment you come up with reasons why you can't. My ankle hurts. I have a meeting in the middle of the day. I need to be alert for that. I can't get up early. We come up with excuses. And the same can be said for our resolve to fight sin in our own lives. We become very complacent. Maybe, maybe we presume a lot too much on God's grace and say, well, this little peccadillo in my life, He's going to overlook. Christ paid for it. It's, it's okay. How does this relate to the providence of God? That's the chapter that we're considering. The fact that God governs all of His creatures and all their actions. We've seen how He is actively governing every single atom in the universe. He is directing them, disposing them, upholding them, governing them every moment of every day. We read this in first, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 1:3 this morning that this is the office of the incarnate Christ at this moment. He is actively governing his creation. Well, how does that relate to my battle with sin? Doesn't it seem like it would make sense that if God possesses this kind of infinite, eternal, and unchanging power over all of His creation, there would be some moment in my life where He would totally set me free from sin. What gives? I don't know about you, but it seems like there are some sins that you pray about and pray about and pray about and say, Lord, help me overcome this. And you make little gains and then you fall back into that same sin. And it's, life is a regular wrestling. And it's frustrating. How does this relate to providence? Why doesn't God just eliminate it? Isn't that within His power? Can He not sanctify a human being to the extent that sin would no longer have any sway whatsoever over Him? Can't He do that? One person should at least nod his or her head. (laughs) Scripture teaches us that God uses our weaknesses as a vessel through which He teaches us holy lessons the weaknesses of your flesh, the unwillingness to conform that you find, the the time that your heart is cold and unloving toward the Lord and you, you don't worship Him the way you ought. 
God is using that as a vessel through which He teaches you holy lessons. He daily reminds us of our lack of personal holiness, our need for Him, and how desperately we must remain alert against sin's advances. In other words, I think one way we can put this is that in our struggle, um, God reminds us that we are human beings made in His image, not intended to be robots, but a very real relationship with Him in which there's a very real dependence upon Him that we need to be reminded of. Let's look at, first of all, what the confession says, and then we'll, we'll uh, evaluate just a few points on this. Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 5, says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. And just a comment. I I have always found this paragraph to be so comforting because when you think about the men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, they were were men whose lives obviously evidenced a love for Christ and for His Word, even in the midst of of dreadful persecution, they sought the highest holiness for themselves. And yet you see here how they understand the pastoral aspect of all theology and doctrine. How does this come down to to people like you and me? How can we minister the providence of God to everyday people who are wrestling with everyday sins? Well, you ought to learn uh, Chapter 5, paragraph 5. How do you counsel somebody who's, who, who seems to make a sincere profession of faith and yet <clears throat> is wrestling to overcome sin in his, his or her life? How do you counsel somebody like that? Well, remember this paragraph. Take it to heart. Look up the Scripture references. Take those to heart as well. well three things... Um, that we're going to take away from this. There are many others that you could use and apply in your, your own life and in the lives of others. One, seasons of weakness grow your humility before God. Two, seasons of weakness grow your dependence on God, your sense of your own dependence upon God. And then thirdly, seasons of weakness um, grow your alertness. Um, the Puritans would have used the term watchfulness against sin. Let's look first of all at how seasons of weakness grow your humility before God. Thomas Watson uh, says, and I've repeated this many times, but it's worth repeating again. He says that God sees humility to be better for us than joy. And this is why, the, why he ordains seasons of difficulty. 
It is better for you, in other words, to, to be humble before the Lord. That is a, that is a higher virtue or, or more pleasant for the Christian. It is more pleasant for the Christian to be humble and self-abasing than to be joyful in all things. First of all, what is a season of weakness? What, what is a season of weakness? How could we talk about that? First of all, it is a season. Remember, we're not talking about a, a particular besetting sin that you don't repent of and you cherish and you go on loving like your goldfish. That's not what we're talking about in seasons. How long is a season? Well, I don't know. We don't have a definition of the length of time of a season. But we think of it as a temporary situation in a believer's life um, where there is a change. And it, it, the confession teaches us, what, what is it? It is when God leaves us to a variety of temptations and the corruption of our own hearts. Remember, remember, if there were no corruption in your heart, a variety of temptations would make no difference whatsoever. You could simply say, bring it on, whatever the temptation is. But because there is corruption in our hearts, then there is also temptation in the world. If that did not exist, our pure desire would be for God's glory in our own lives. So there are, biblically speaking, seasons in which God leaves us to temptations and to the corruption of our own hearts. Let's look at a couple of examples. First of all, we see Hezekiah's haughtiness. Hezekiah's haughtiness. Look over with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 32. If you're not sure where 2 Chronicles is, it comes right after 1 Chronicles. Page 697 in my Bible. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 20. Reading about King Hezekiah here. <clears throat> a good king in, uh, in Judah. Then Hezekiah the king, this is Second uh, Chronicles thirty two twenty. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the, land of from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. So in the course of three verses here, think about a Hezekiah's situation goes from one where he's crying to one where he's exalted over all the kings of the earth. Well, that's great. Except then we read this part. Verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. What does it mean that he didn't make return? 
Well, in Psalm 116, verses 12 to 14, we read this. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, for what God has done for me, I will go and praise him. Hezekiah didn't do that. He never thanked the Lord and gave him praise for his goodness. He never did that. You can never, in other words, repay the Lord for his goodness. But he does require you to acknowledge it. Remember, it is evil not to acknowledge the works of God, Psalm 28.5. Continuing on then, back to Second Chronicles 32, verses 25 to 26. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. In other words, what's he doing there? He looks back on the victory that the Lord gave him, and he says, man, look what I did. Never thanks the Lord. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now skip down to verse 31. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. In an act of divine discipline, God left Hezekiah to himself. He did not provide divine intervention against Hezekiah's enemies. Yet God did this from a motive of love, not evil. This was to test him and to know all that was in Hezekiah's heart. God tested him. As a man tests the quality of fine gold, he melts it down and removes the impurities from it. He looks at it to test it, to see if it is fine gold. And here, God tested Hezekiah by leaving him to himself to show him what was in his heart, whether there was faithfulness or not, fear of God or not. And in the test, Hezekiah remembered how weak he was without the Lord. What a loving lesson. We also see this in, in David in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. We looked at this last week, but we read there that again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. In other words, the Lord is discovering to David his own weakness. But what we see is that the, the providence of God, still it is extending even into our seasons of weakness in order that he might teach us these tender lessons. God uses these seasons to humble us. He chastises us for former sins. What does that mean? Well, you think about your own children perhaps and that day that they do the thing that you have told them not to do. And so, as a faithful parent, what do you do? You chastise them for that sin. You discipline them. 
And there are days when the Lord chastises you for your former sins, the things that you have done. You sinned against the Lord and the Lord disciplines you for it. Maybe He removes a particular favor from you. As a father disciplines his son for a former sin, so so God disciplines His children. But He also reveals the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of our hearts. In other words, He reminds you of your ongoing condition. That you are weak. You are not as strong as you think. Apart from Christ, you have no victory. And here we remember that if God loves you as a son, if you belong to Him, He will not let you go on in your sin enjoying it. He will remove the pleasure. He will chastise you for it. If He doesn't chastise you for sin, you are not a son. He expresses His love for you by gently growing you in humility a recognition that ultimately you are nothing apart from Him. Secondly, seasons of weakness grow your dependence on God. We have three three things to consider here. Um, How does God grow our dependence on Him? Well, He delivers us from self-exaltation. He delivers us from envying the wicked. And He delivers us from self-pity. Notice how he delivers us from self-exaltation. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You, you know the story here. And, and as, we, as we come to 2 Corinthians, I think one of the things to remember is that Paul indicted the Corinthian church over and over because they were a boastful people. Um, they, they had within their body what they called super apostles. Um, he, he sarcastically writes to them and he says, oh, but you are kings and queens. You are so far above us apostles. They they believe that they are super Christians, as it were. They, they should be the envy of the town. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you can see the irony a bit. Paul continuing to chastise. 2 Corinthians 12.1 I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and here he's probably referring to himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think 
more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, speaking of himself, he, he could boast. In other words, he could stand in a room full of Christians and he could say, you think you're special. Let me tell you what God has done for me. Has God ever caught you up to the third heaven? Has God ever given you dreams and visions? Let me tell you one of the secret things that God told me that I've never written in any letter. Let me whisper it to you. And then you can go and tell your friends about the secret information that you got from Paul. I I could say that, Paul is saying. And I know that perhaps I have a proclivity to do it, so we continue in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, what Paul is reminding us of is that you and I are truly strong not when we become proud of how far the Lord has brought us or of what we know, what we become strong when the Lord empties us of those things and say, in fact, I've grown so much that I've learned that I don't know anything. I need to keep on learning. And all the things that the Lord has delivered me from in the, in this, in the time of my life, I, I don't lie anymore. I don't cuss anymore. I don't tell dirty jokes even when I'm just with my buddies. He's delivered me from all of these things. But when you mature in the Lord, you see, actually, I have so much further to go. And sometimes God chastises you. In Paul's case, a messenger sent to him from Satan to buffet him. God delivered him from self-exaltation so that he would boast in the Lord. But he also delivers us from envying the wicked. From envying the wicked. This was a challenge for uh, the writer of Psalm 73. Do you ever find yourself saying, man, I, I could have it so much better. And I see I see wicked men. I, see, I know that guy's a scoundrel and a cheat and a liar. How does he continue being successful? And what you find that you're, you become envious. This happened to, this, to Asaph when he says, Truly God is good to Israel, but to those who are pure in heart. Uh, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had all, nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And at first, he says, at first, it seems like they get everything. Notice what he says in verse 4. They have no pangs of death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see what he's saying. I look around me. And the, the more wicked you are, it seems like the more you prosper. You eat what you want. I almost stumbled. But then I recognized God's providence in verses 17 to 28. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrorists. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And Asaph is saying, I would take that. I would take that. Than eating everything that my heart desired and having everything that my heart desired in this life. I would take God holding my hand for He sets the wicked. Then I see He's setting the wicked in slippery places in which they will fall down into their condemnation. When He remembers the providence of God, it, it, He's delivered from envying the wicked. He also delivers us from self-pity in Psalm 77. We find the man crying out to the Lord aloud to God, He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I will seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. But then in the end, verse 10, he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And in verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And what does that help him to do? Stop saying, woe is me. I remember your providence. Seasons of weakness deliver us from self-exaltation. They deliver us from envying the wicked. They deliver us from self-pity and enable us to depend on the Lord. Now, would you say, "I, I want that? Do you? I I want humility. I don't want to think much of myself. I want to think biblically about myself. 
I want to depend on Him. Well, then what do you need? You need the loving discipline of your Father. You need the seasons of weakness. You need to be reminded of the corruption of your own heart. You need His chastisement for former sins. And now when you receive those things, you greet them with thanksgiving. Lastly, Seasons of weakness grow your alertness. I don't think we can think about this point without remembering the disciples in the garden with Jesus. When He went in to pray, He says, now watch and pray with Me. And He went in to pray and He came back out and what was happening? They were sleeping. And Jesus chastised them. Can you not watch and pray for one hour? Watch, therefore, so that you do not enter into temptation. We remember the necessity of preparedness. Imagine if we received a letter in the mail here at at the church. Cassandra opens it, and she comes running into my office, and she says, we have a, there's a threat. You need to read this. And I open the letter, and I look at it, and I read it, and somebody has threatened the church. They're going to come and burn it down. What would we do? Well, we would probably... Um, put Jimmy Johnson out at front 24 hours a day to watch to make sure that somebody didn't come. Somebody would man the cameras. Um, maybe we'd d- dig a moat so that we'd have ready access to water. It, some, we would do something, and we would be vigilant, and we wouldn't stop until we were absolutely certain that the church was safe. Right? But you don't do that for your soul. Every day, every moment, there is an enemy inside of you seeking to drag your soul to hell. Are you watching against him? Do you know what he's trying to do and how he's trying to do it? John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Little indulgences become besetting sins. Besetting sins become overpowering lusts. And overpowering lusts drag us to hell eternally. Now we assure that saved men will persevere to the end. You believe that. You will persevere in Christ. But not all men who profess faith persevere. You understand. Many ultimately deny Christ and wander back to the world. Will that be you? In the Christian, a single sin is a reminder of a proclivity to sin and incites us to careful alertness and temptation. Think with me just a moment about Peter. This is from Mark chapter 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know you, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is Peter. Who we just saw profess faith in Christ. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. I'll go with you to the cross. You're not going to the cross. This is Peter whom the Lord took to the top of Mount Hermon. This is Peter who saw Christ transfigured with his waking eyes. Who saw Christ transfigured. If in him there is a proclivity to fall, isn't there a proclivity in you? Watch and pray. But also take this comfort. That in John 21, verses 15 to 17, the Lord Jesus Christ restored Peter. And as often as you fall, and as often as you repent, and as often as you seek the Lord's forgiveness, being alert and vigilant against your own sin, he will forgive you. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Seasons of weakness toward temptation creep into your life like covert enemy soldiers. You think you are something when you're not. You cease to give thanks to God for every day of protection and provision. You forget how susceptible you are to sin. In the believer, seasons of weakness are a providential help. They are like the friend who loads the weight bar with more than you can lift to remind you how weak you really are. All we have comes from God. Unless He sustain us in our pursuit of holiness, we would be utterly lost. Not an ounce of your salvation depends on you. All your sufficiency comes from Christ, delivered by His Holy Spirit. Make sure you thank Him for it. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, how manifold is Your providence in ways that we don't even understand. Father, You sustain us each and every moment by Your grace, operating through Your Son, given to us um, by Your Holy Spirit. How we thank You, how we praise You, and how we confess, O oh Lord, that we are weak. Oh God, we are weak. And You know our frame. You know that we are dust. 
Help us to remember that we are dust. How frequently, Lord, do we sin against you by thinking we can shake your hands away and walk on our own. And how kind are you, O Lord, to let us fall and then to lift us up again by your grace. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here tonight. Help us to be a watchful people. Let us not make friends with even the smallest compromises of your standard. Help us to delight in holiness and love it and teach others to love it too. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.